listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. So Kirk ran a fi- his second 5K last night. F- 15.7.92. Oh, just looked it, just up, looked it up, huh? And we're in this heat bloom. When I texted him at what? I don't know what time I texted you. Like 7 or 8 p.m. It was not where I was. It was oh. 95 feels like 108. That's terrible. Two hours later, it it was better. But I'm guessing it was what, like 90 feels like 100? I think it said feels like 95 when we raced. I think it was like 89 feels like 95 or something. Um, It was gross. But they had these, uh, it was really nice. They had two people with sprinklers on both bends. So at like 50 meters and and 250, they had people spraying the field. So like we had like a 10 meter stretch twice a lap that was, we were being misted on. Which, believe it or not, made a difference in the back half of that race. I believe it. Oh, it does. I, I remember I did the uh, decathlon. It, my coach just threw me in it, like right after the uh, senior season ended. And the fifteen hundred, they're spraying us with hoses, and I was like, "Why don't they do this every time?" And this is only for fifteen hundred. Like, it felt so good. Made a difference. I always said that if I could design my perfect cross country or track course, the whole thing would be one big tunnel of the misters they have at Six Flags <laughs> yeah. in America. <laughs> that would be it. The whole thing would be the cool zone. Yeah. Do you, Kirk, do you know the humidity last night? I think it was 70 or 72. Are you doing some conversions right now? Yeah, it's about 12 seconds a mile. Jesus. I like the sound of that. Compared to what? What's the standard? What's baseline? Uh, like probably about 55, 60 degrees. It, it's just heat adjustment factor. 30, 35 seconds, I think. Your 1450s. 1440 high. So even if you take half of that, you got 18, probably what, 19 seconds? I do it. I was telling Bracken before you hopped on, the about most of the field raced this race last year and they came back this year. The top seed was, they had two guys going trying to go sub 14, run 1350, and they both dropped because of the temps. They're like, I'm not going to race, like I'm trying to run a time. So they paced instead, they decided. So they paced like multiple heats. They paced like 16 flat and then they went and paced 15 flat in the next heat they got a workout instead of race so the top guys dropped point being but other than that most of the same guys raced this year's last and they said last year it was like 65 degrees or something when they raced and everybody was roughly 30 seconds faster last year than they were this year so if you track that that would almost track with what you are saying 36 yes no without even without knowing any of that background info just the calculator that I used to use when I lived in Texas and it was unbearable, that seems to add up. So I I think unofficially you have a 1440 high, 1450 to your name. Like that. Well, last year, Tyler German ran 1420 and he won. And this year he ran 1449. He ran 29 seconds slower. Mm-hmm. So that also tracks. So even, was, so you need 18, you need 18 seconds. And if, if he I need 18 seconds. was 28, 29 seconds slower like come on you, you've got that you aren't you aren't out kicking tyler Durman. no offense you want to know the worst part huh the guy who went past kirk in the last mile is the guy who beat me in that 800 meter road race <laughs> how random is that it's amazing <laughs> you know how rich hates europe not really but how like he's anti-europe you running public has got to be anti that guy like he's just messing up your results yeah he's really nice 
and he's really fast. Joe Zach, the man yeah. of two first names. He's super down to earth. Yeah, unfortunately, well, Rich so Ryan. Horrible, so yeah, there's a double first name. He lives over here. I don't know what he was doing up there. A bunch of guys traveled. Other than just chasing a five. Yeah, they all, a lot of guys traveled for this one out of state. It was kind of cool. Um, but the only problem is, is there's no, there's no, I asked, I was asking the guys afterwards and Phil Rickert, who, you know, who was a national champ in college. We finally, he gave me some respect and he gave me a fist bump before. And he said, we cooled down together. And he's like, I'm be honest. I saw you in the start line at the last race. And I thought, what is this chump doing in our heat? <laughs> this guy doesn't belong here. I'm going to smoke him. He said, and then you beat me. And I was like, who is this guy that shouldn't be doing this? And so we had a nice commiseration. I beat him again, which was nice. But a couple of guys were like, you're the guys with the big boobs that ran faster than you should have last meet. I got that from two people. I was like, yeah, why do you think I'm the only shirtless guy in the fast seat? Kirk, I, I saw that picture and you looked like a monster. You're, you look like Shrek compared to them. They're just, it, it was it was impressive. It, you definitely represented for the, the okay. bigger runners. Is that, wait, that... Should you want to use Shrek as the... Oh, he's a big guy. Okay, then who would you like? Shrek has a gut. Outside of maybe like strongmen or powerlifters, I can't think of anyone who would be like, hey, thanks, man. That's a great compliment. (laughs) Well, I... You look like Shrek. So recently, I I was talking with my friend Mike, and there was this Reddit thread, and someone posted that Shrek is the strongest being in the universe, because there was some scene in, in the movie Shrek where he'd like picked up a giant dragon and just like threw it and some physicist calculated like the force that it would actually take to do that and they're like no one's stronger than shrek so that, that's what i was giving you a compliment indirectly kirk felt like it uh the only problem <laughs> is that i was asking the guys after we were chatting and i finally got accepted into the circle i feel like last night you know what i mean like everybody knows each other they circle and i'm like the guy in my virus compression shorts and no shirt without a team singlet on so I, I i i don't fit in but now i feel like i do but i was asking them like where where can i get another crack at this thing like the weather's been tough and they're all talking about it there's no other opportunity like there's nothing they know about unless you hop into like a random road 5k and then you have to be worried about distance and is it accurate even if it's usatf certified and so there's i might go indoors and try to race some indoor meets this winter and yeah i would and try to break 15 instead of go hybrid i might just stay the court i don't know interesting you were mentioning uh getting in the click basically like isn't it so much harder to get in in the group like the cool guy crew and in running i feel like it is everyone just kind of judges each other based on times and you can be a, you know, a super nice guy, but if you're like 20 seconds slower than the mile, it's like, we can't be associated with this guy when we're hanging out. It, it's so clicky. And I, I forgot what that's like. Cause OCR is just this big old group of people who don't really care for the most part, but going back into that circle, it must be a weird adjustment. That is a good point. You're, you're, you are your time in track and field, aren't you Bracken? I see you smiling about it. It's like, you're, it's like, you might as well have you, they, you're a person and you have your PRs on your forehead. And then everybody sort of gathers around who have similar PRs because you've earned, that's your social click. I agree with you. Um, it was hard. Mm-hmm. The first time nobody talked to me, I kind of went in and after the race, there were a couple yeah. fist bumps, but it was sort of like they kept to themselves and did their thing. And then this time it felt very different. I think you have to earn, you have to earn their respect, I think. And you're right. OCR is like very inclusive. It's like, you can have an open waiver and elite staying in the same house. I don't think you'd see that in track. No, I think it changes each level. High school is so clicky. And then college, like the party aspect gets brought into it. And so you can 
supersede your PRs if you're like a fun guy at a party. And then post-collegially, like here it took you one race and then you were in. High school, it might have taken you four years. But it's weird. Runners are this weird combination of like a prize fighter and a skittish little cat. <laughs> like they have all this like bravado of any high-level athlete where there's a huge ego and there's huge confidence, but they're also inherently either dork, nerd, or geek. Like all of us fit one of those three and we can't fully supersede that. So it's this weird combination of huge ego and no confidence. We're making general statements here, but all of us have that to some extent and it comes out at the start line and during warmups where people have a hard time. They all look at each other and analyze their stride and their shoes and their musculature, but they don't really make eye contact or talk or like, hey, good luck today. They're just kind of like... Shoulders hunched in your own little leg. Don't look at me. That's accurate. Yeah, I, I grew up 1,500 miles away from you, and it was the same exact thing. That's just the way people are. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that it's a little bit different in a race that Kirk just had, for instance, because everybody, unless you're just a complete fool, you you were kind of rightly seated. So most people should take you kind of seriously. It might be like, oh, that, that guy's a little bigger. I don't know. He might blow up. But I feel like you at least already had an easier way entering into that click uh, because you're already surrounded by your seed time as opposed to having to kind of earn your way through the high school ranks. And then you get to college and it's like, all right, you you put in work. You didn't accidentally end up on a college team, but there still is, like you mentioned, the division between best. And, you know, if you're, you're a fun guy to be around, you might make your way into that group, even though you don't have the credentials running wise. But yeah, it's, it's so weird to see the evolution versus other sports. I'll say this. I walked up to Kirk's house for his day before the wedding festivities at his lake. And he walked up to me. And if I had been at the start of a 5K there, I would have scoffed at him in that moment. Because you forget how muscular Kirk is in real life. He's always surrounded by other OCR people. You see him at the start of an OCR race. And yeah, he stands out, but it's not like this, oh my goodness, who's this freak? It's like, oh, there's another super fit guy here. But then you see him in real life and he's just kind of stupidly muscular and ripped. And so the way we always used to feel at OCR start lines when the CrossFit bro or like someone super big and jacked and bulky would step up to the front of the start line. We're like, what are you doing? You clearly can't run a half marathon and we're all about to. So just step back a row or two. That has to be the exact way that I would have felt. And I'm sure how they felt with you stepping to the start line shirtless for a, a track race. It's funny. I was talking, I was paying attention. I was like, am I just going to wear a shirt to fit in? I brought my uh, running public singlet. You made me again. And I want to wear this thing, but it was so hot. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm going to just pay attention. And like the fifth, I showed up in the fifth heat of 10 was going and these heats get progressively faster. In the fifth heat of 10, there were like six shirtless dudes. In the sixth heat of 10, there were like, these guys are trying to run 18 minutes, 1730. It gets faster and faster. The eighth, ninth, and 10th had zero shirtless dudes. Heat nine had none. Everybody was wearing their singlet. And I said, screw it. I'm still doing it. I was like, as the heats got faster, the kits got more formal. So it felt even more out of place, if Mm -hmm. that makes sense. But whatever, whatever. I'll say it real quick. I have that same singlet that you have, but in a different color. And it's the most breathable top I've ever raced in. Best ever. I wore it for workouts all winter on the treadmill to let myself breathe, but keep sweat from splashing. I wore it when Callie and I did a high rocks and partners high rocks is so sweaty because you work really hard and then you stand still. And as soon as you stand still, you just start gushing. And I was running into station, I think three 
the, the sled pull thinking, thank goodness this is the shirt I decided to wear because I am so much less hot than I would be in anything else. And this week I put it on for a workout and I took it right off. Mm. We're just at a level, like when you're high 90s with 70 plus humidity, there's nothing that breathes well. Every ounce on your body is misery. So even though like politically, I would never race shirtless on the track this week, all bets go out the window and I would have been in as little as possible. What would it take for you to do it, Bracken? This week. This week. <laughs> this week it. is exactly what it would. I would have, I would have run shirtless too. If you were seated in the fast heat with guys, with their sing, everybody, almost with everybody Kirk. had a representative representative singlet you would have still done it yeah because i think it's no different than the way that 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 situation in texas when i decided to wear cross-country shoes because i wanted to feel faster for a half marathon distance trail race when i got to mile six or seven i realized none of the other things mattered other than the fact that this wasn't appropriate for the day and I think that's the exact way I'd put on my singlet, fit in, feel fa- You feel fast in a singlet. And at about lap five, six, somewhere in there, I would have been so hot and it'd be clung to me. And you have that feeling of it's like kind of compressing your diaphragm, even though it's not stopping you from breathing. You're so miserable that everything feels like it's conspiring against you. I, abs- I If I would have started with a singlet, I probably would have removed it because it would have just been plastered to you. Mm. What What's not fair, not and then let's get to Jack Bauer, by the way. Talk about looking ripped and fit. That's what spawned, spawned the idea oh, to talk oh, to yeah. Jack. We're going to get to something. We're going to get something to something today, folks. I assume we're going to be using something that we've been I mean, that's a compliment coming from you. Yeah, buddy. But the women, so there were some really fast women, some looking to break 16, which I didn't. There were two women in the ninth heat, which is oddly, crazy impressive. But the women wear sports bras that are four inches wide and bundies and have their and have their bib on their sports bra, they're wearing less than a shirtless man in compression shorts. Like they get off well. And then the culture is the men wear the singlets. And so the women who are in the kits are basically running out there in a swimsuit, which is a little unfair. And that's that's the expectation on that level. But the men are like, put clothes on and go race. Are you going to level up and wear some of those shorts next time? to Sports bra? Yeah. Bundy's every single female listener is like are you kidding me I know really <laughs> I know <laughs> we get off easy here having to wear a sports bra all the time and we're a lot like, it's the In only situation instance, I'm talking I think athletically on the earth or non-athletically where women have like the easier route clothing wise but it's true. In this one snapshot of life. You just cut that part out I just said there. That was <laughs> yeah. ignorance. I'm not chiming in. <laughs> I'm going to put it on the loop and post it on social media. I'm sorry, ladies. See if we can make you most hated man in America. Again. Again. Um, okay. Thank you guys for being so nice to me. Still got to still gotta try again to get, to get under You'll 15. Get but uh, you talked about, you said something to, I think it was on the podcast. I don't remember what it was, Bracken, but... You talked about walking up and seeing me at the house and me looking more jacked than you remember or whatever. And Jack Bauer showed up to my wedding three weeks ago looking fit. Mm-hmm. Like, you looked like you had mm-hmm. a not an ounce of body fat on you. You were in these extra tight-fitted pants that just made your butt pop out. And you had this tight polo on. Your biceps were bulging. And I was like, that dude is on his stuff. I was like, and I was like, I thought Jack was injured. Thought Jack hasn't been running. And then we had a conversation at some point, whether it was text or something, about, yeah, like I've been cross training and I, you know, a little bit took a page out of your book, Kirk, and I've been on it, so to speak. 
And uh, you're just coming out of it, aren't you? You've run again, I believe, recently. Mm -hmm. About four or five days ago, first run in 12 weeks. Okay. Well, I have two athletes who are very injured right now and cross-training through it, and I'm guiding them through that. And they certainly could hear the used to hear this conversation. And I thought, well, Jack Bauer looks more fit than I've ever seen him, and he hasn't been running, so what has he been doing? And so I thought this was a really good opportunity to chat out like cross-training through injury, and who better than the uh, tight-pants, tight-polo Jack Bauer to walk us through his recent cross-training. It's exactly what I said to Lisa. We got back into the car after seeing him for the first time, and I said, I've never seen Jack look this fit. And it's not that you don't look fit normally, but like even little things like your forearms were veinier than I remember them being. That's like, that's, it's a foolish thing, but I'm always just looking at people's bodies. <laughs> I don't know if it's like the coach in me or what, or the pervert in me, but I just check people out and analyze what they look like. Not in a judgmental way, but just like the same way I instantly see a runner and I look to their feet and see what are they running in. And I've never seen you look this Fit. Now, you obviously can't judge fitness just by appearance, but it's also not like the worst barometer for how well is your training going. And so we, Kirk and I both left that weekend thinking, damn, Jack looks fit. Thanks, Scott. I, I think this is uh, more compliments in the past two minutes from you guys than the entire time we were together on Race Brain. So appreciate that. <laughs> one, one, one would have been, been yeah. It's <laughs> like, I don't know what you guys are <laughs> propping me up for because I'm just waiting for the comeback. But um but yeah, and actually, Kirk, you mentioned the the tight pants and the butt. Wasn't someone in your family saying that? It's like, oh, I know that this is a fit wedding because of everybody walking around and they've all got nice butts, something like that. Yeah, who was that? Was that my aunt or somebody? I don't remember. Somebody said that to, was it the group of us, like the OCR guys? <laughs> I think so. I forget. <laughs> We're just all hanging out. I, I thought Jess might have mentioned that she heard it. Yeah. yeah. That was, yeah, that was an interestingly uh, complimentary thing to say. Like, yeah, I know you guys work out because everybody has great butts. I think it was Jess's aunt that I don't even really know that well. She just yeah. was making her rounds, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, basically, I was like, I've I've got to get wedding ready, just like most people. They tried doing that, and only this time I was the guest, so I had to had to make sure I impressed the groom. Um, no, but uh, where, where do you guys want me to start with that? Like, it, I've definitely, I, do you want me to go over, like, when I got hurt, that kind of stuff and what's kind of happened. Yeah. Yeah. Because I've, I've really chronicled my injuries and setbacks and all of my injuries, I came back looking worse. I didn't nail my rehab. I did well with like structural support of it, but I came back lacking some things. I came back softer than I went in for all of it and you didn't. So right from the start, I mean, you can, let's, let's start with the hilariously sad story of how you got hurt. And then well, how did you plan out from the start what you were going to do? How did you approach it? And then how did you hilariously sad? Um, yeah, it kind of yeah. was. So, so Bracken and I actually had a call scheduled later that afternoon. We were going to go over talking about Palmerton, their 3k course. He was going to end up racing that he'd raced there before he kind of did some mapping out of the course. And we were just going to discuss general way to approach the venue. Cause I'd never been there. And it was like the first time in probably close to a month that we didn't have any rain in Colorado Springs. We had a really rainy spring. And for cross training for years, I've gone rollerblading um, once a week, um, sometimes twice a week. And I'm, I've just been doing it for a bunch of years. And several other people in the sport, John Albin, Zuzana, Chris Roglowski, a bun bunch of others do it. So figure it's it's a good way to to stay fit. Um, but anyway, I, I call Bracken. I'm like, hey, I've, or I text him. I'm like, I've got like little weather window. Um, let, let's schedule this for like an hour and a half or an hour from now. 
And so I go out 10 minutes from the way back and then I come over a hill and there's sand and I couldn't do anything about it. When you're, when you're skating, sand and dirt and pebbles are like your biggest fear because they can, they just prevent you from stopping. Um, and especially on like a downhill section where you have to make a quick turn. And yeah, basically I tried going around a corner. I had like three, four seconds to decide, do I go off the trail and go smash into some rocks below or do I make a 90 degree turn? And then I tried to make the turn and smashed into a pedestrian bridge, made a steal. And within like a second, I was messed up. Um, and I just skated by some kid who was selling lemonade right beforehand. And I like smashed into it. Blood was coming out of my nose and my knee didn't look too good, but adrenaline like was immediate. So I'm like, oh, maybe I'll just go back up the hill. That kid will give me a napkin or something so I can wipe this off, not having any clue how bad this injury was. So I go back up there 20 seconds later, even though I've got a damaged knee, just the adrenaline was just letting me, letting me skate uphill somehow. Um, and I'm like, Hey, do you have a napkin or something? And he was just frozen petrified. And he's like, uh, um, uh, and, and there was some guy landscaping maybe 20 feet away. And he's like, Whoa, you need to sit down. And I'm like, that is not what you want to hear after getting in an injury. Um, so I sat down, he gave me like a water bottle, washed me out and I looked down and I could see like white tissue and stuff sticking or through the gash in my knee. It was about the size of my pinky, the, the, hole that they had to stitch up after and you know went to urgent care after that they turned me away they're like you need to go to the er this is way more than we can handle um and then ended up waiting about a week or so went to an orthopedic surgeon to see if i got hurt turns out i had a um a stress fracture in my kneecap so it went 90 percent of the way through it went 10 percent more my kneecap would have exploded which would have been like really bad um but i got really lucky with that and I was only like a couple millimeters away from doing damage to my PCL and LCL on the outside as well. So in terms of running knee related injuries, I was just fractions of a percent away from needing a bunch of surgery and stuff. But fortunately, I was able to avoid that. Whoa. What what did your knee hit? Yeah. Do you think? Do you even remember? Did it hit the bridge? Um, did it hit the ground? No, no. I was I was going 21 miles an hour because um, I... I couldn't, I was going about 15 beforehand and upskated. This is my first rollerblading accident in four years. And I probably go 15 to 20 miles a week. I'm, I'm pretty confident at it. Um, and I've, I've been on this path dozens of times, but I smashed into a pedestrian bridge and it was like a 90 degree angle with like the point sticking at you, like a diamond almost. Mm. Um, and yeah, my knee just went right into that. And right beforehand, I was like, I'm just going to jump and kind of brace just instead of just smashing right into it like a you know just letting that determine my fate so i think whatever i did in that split second affected the outcome of how my knee hit it and and i was wearing a helmet i was wearing wrist guards i was wearing gloves but i didn't have knee pads on so that was uh that was a, a learning lesson you could say so you fractured your kneecap mm -hmm. broke your nose yep and avoided major ligament damage. Now, my third or fourth grade teacher fell down the concrete, the polished concrete stairs toward heading down to our library, and she did shatter her kneecap. Like it, once it breaks all the way through, it kind of just, like you said, explodes. It just fractures. She had like seven pieces, I think hers went into. And it was full-on leg brace for months. So you did, you did avoid the worst of it, but a kneecap fracture is just not <laughs> ideal for, for building up to your fall races. For, for so what runner. did you do right yeah. away? So, 
so yeah, I, I highly recommend this. Anybody who gets an in a, in a, especially if you live in the US, if you get into a situation where you have a knee injury or any type of injury, you need to nicely bully your way into getting an MRI if it's potentially structural damage. Cause I didn't know the extent of this until a week later, but I was like, I, I went to uh, the ER. They're like, Oh, we, this happened on May 29th. And they're like, we can get you to see a specialist on like June 25th or something. I'm like, I am not waiting four weeks without doing anything for you guys to tell me what you can, what my options are. And so I, as nicely as I could went to pretty much four or five different offices. And I was like, is there any way you can fit me? in? I don't care if I come before hours, after hours, whatever, I'll pay extra. I just need to get some clarity on what's going on mm -hmm. with this situation. So a lot of people, like I talked with Nicole, uh, Miracle and Lacey Burgess, both of whom have torn their ACL in the past. Um, and it seems like the going rate is like three to four weeks before anyone even sees you. I got in in six or seven days to get an MRI. So just be persistent. And that allows you to figure out your comeback approach a lot sooner instead of waiting three or four weeks, just kind of in bed on crutches, not like your body is not improving or at least getting any extra blood flow there. You don't know the treatment process at that point. So I made sure I wasn't going to go a month without seeing someone. So that would be my first. Hit. I will second that. I went through that knee process twice, had to get MRIs both times. And then I got a third MRI, what? two, three months ago, Kirk, mm. because I was feeling something weird in there and I was worried and I wanted to make sure. And the first time I followed their protocol and the second time I decided to do a bit more of what you did. And then the, by the third time I knew exactly what to do, but just like a little bit of look behind the scenes, any scheduling software that someone on the phone is talking to you with, they have, it's, it's like shopping online where you click your search results or you can refine search results, except it's kind of the opposite with their software. It comes out refined. So they've already clicked it down to like where your location is and the immediate vicinity and certain hours. And you have to find someone who is willing to take the extra time to go in and remove all the other parameters if you're fl flexible enough to get it done. And so for the third time, I was lucky enough to get this woman who was like, oh, let me try this. And she ended up running five or six different searches, removing more and more parameters until she found something within like 48 hours I could get in. But originally it was the same thing. It was like seven weeks. And then the next search was four weeks and the next search was two weeks. So they can do more. They just have to be either really nice or correctly prompted to do more. And once you understand how their backend works, you can start to leverage yourself a little bit more effectively. Yeah, it sounds like you had the same employee. <laughs> so maybe she used to work there. Yeah. Yeah, just just be nice. It never hurts to be nice to someone and, and they can find a way. You, that, that was a good analogy with like the filters. And actually that happened with yeah. me. And there's waiting lists too. For sure. And I, I was like, I don't care if this is at three in the morning, I'll wake up, I'll go there. I could care less, just, just get mm -hmm. me in. Um, and there's this, actually it was an office. It was, they had two offices. One of them was four minutes from my house, which was great. The other one was on the complete North end of town, 35 minutes away. And that was the one that they were able to see me. I'm like, I could care less. I'll drive up here every single week. If that's what it takes to, to get this done. I need to see someone. I don't want my body, you know, going into a state of rigor mortis and like having some weird bad healing app going on while I'm just waiting for someone to, you know, diagnose me. So I feel like the first two weeks mm -hmm. are very important to to be seen. Well, and in my case, I didn't have a tear and I could have sworn there was. It felt just like my previous tears. So I would have waited seven weeks of inactivity 
to find out I was a hypochondriac. Yeah. So either side of the coin, you need to know right away so you can plan. Tricky thing we're not talking about for most is you guys are running under the assumption that you have a quarterback of a doctor who can give you the referral. Most people run into this like, I don't even know if I have a primary care physician or getting in to see them. And by the time that referral sends you to the specialist, sends you to the MRI, you're six weeks deep because everybody's on a wait list. So like the tricky thing is getting that referral. And so just talk about that. So for some people who have gone through this process, that's the most frustrating part. Like I just want an MRI and I need somebody to prescribe it and I can't freaking get anybody to write that as necessary. Talk about that. Well, I can't guarantee this will work for everybody, but that's funny you say that, Kirk. Um, I ended up getting a recommendation. I mentioned her earlier, Lacey Burgess, who she does OCR. She tore ACL about two years ago, maybe two and a half years, or no, year and a half ago. Um, but anyway, she recommended the physical therapist that she saw. And I'm like, well, if he's already has familiarity with OCR and running, he'd be a good guy. So I, I go up there, I, I go in person instead of calling. Cause every single time that you call one of these offices, they never answer. They're like press five to be connected to old so-and-so. fashioned, old school. That's just old school right there. Determination. Like, yeah. And of course, then you take your horse there. I took my horse. Yeah. I'm kidding. No, crutches. <laughs> all the way. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, but anyway, I, I went in there and of course, no one's ever on the phone when you go to these offices. So it's a mystery why whenever you actually do get in person, you're like, wait, why have I been on hold for 40 minutes all these other times? Um, but I went in there and I'm like, oh, I, I have a referral to see Pat, who was her physical therapist. And the lady was like, oh, we haven't got it yet. I'm like, oh, it's coming in. I already I already got it. I'm like, can I schedule four appointments? And so I did that and she didn't fact check it. And then then I spent like the next two days before my appointment. I'm like, someone send in a referral. You got to do it. But I I prompted getting in on the schedule at that point. Hmm. It's a lie. It's a, he's a liar. Yeah. Did it work? He's a scumbag, and we yeah. know that. Oh, yeah. It worked. Sleaze ball over here. Yeah. For for my Kirk, I was kind of in the situation you described. I didn't have a primary, so I established a primary right away. I went on and just searched the database for anyone within drivable distance, and I just went down the list calling, and I chose the doctor who had the first available appointment. Mm-hmm. So I found someone who had a cancellation that day. This was like I started at 9.05 a.m. or whenever the earliest I could get a hold, and someone had like a 2.55 that day from a cancellation. So I probably called 17 primaries. One office had a cancellation that day, and I just went in and basically said, here are all my symptoms. Could you please perform a... Um, a quick examination, test for a meniscus tear, and then I'm go- I need to go get imaging. And just walked in and said what I needed from the start. So I've never the same. I used the same person then for my next for my hernia. I, I didn't use her for the second. I reestablished a different primary for my second one because she her backlog was too big. So I went through the same process. Said, Hey, I'm looking to establish a new primary. I uh, hear you have some openings, and I just went through that list, found them, never officially established, but just basically used them for an order. I needed or- someone to order imaging for me. And then after that, I went back to my initial primary. But you again, you kind of have to scramble. The, the way it's set up right now is if you show up timid, you're just going to get trampled, and you're going to pay a ton of money to wait. That's what's going to happen is you're, you're exactly right. You need to actually... You need to tell them what you want because what happens is, let's say you get in with your primary, even like you did, and you're gonna be like, "My knee, look at it." They'll be like, "Great, we'll order an X-ray." And then they, the first thing is they're gonna order an X-ray and it's gonna show absolutely nothing. Ninety-nine out of a hundred times, they're gonna order you an X-ray. It's pointless. It's gonna show nothing. They're gonna say, "Jack, go home. You're fine." 
and they'll say, just let it rest. It must be a bone bruise uh, to your kneecap two weeks or something, and you'll be you'll be okay, right? Because x-rays are absolute. They just get rid of x-rays. Unless your leg's obviously sticking out of its skin and you have a tibia mm-hmm. protruding out, like – X-rays are worthless. They're absolutely worthless. And that's what you're going to get when you schedule your primary if you don't ask for what you need. Be like, listen, I need a, I'm need. i on a quick timeline. This is potentially serious. Can we just cut the bullshit? Can I please get the most intensive imaging possible? Because otherwise you're going to go through that process. And like nine out of 10 people get sent home with an X-ray that says, oh, my foot's fine. Like somebody can't even walk out of bed with a foot injury because they heard it running. They go in, they give them the, the standard X-ray. The X-ray shows absolutely nothing. And then they're at home. And then it's a month later and their foot still hurts and they can't run. And they're like, well, the X-ray said it was fine. Like X-rays are garbage. So anyways, you need to be assertive with the advanced imaging. Yeah. That's my little rant on that because I've been through that so many times. Yep. Yeah. And the insurance process, this is all assuming you have insurance that you're not paying out of pocket. We can get to paying out of pocket. But the process is that it goes hierarchy from x-ray to MRI or CAT scan from there. You almost have to, at least in my case, I've never been allowed to go right to MRI. I have to go right to x-ray. And so the first time I went in, but my insurance covers the x-ray at this office, but they outsource their MRI to the person they share the building with and it's not covered. So I got the x-ray and then had to wait two weeks for MRI. So the second time I went in and said, all right, I'm getting x-rays. I need to have an MRI ASAP. And then after they get the x-rays, they're available instantly, and it takes 30 minutes roughly for the order to arrive in any office and be processed. So I just stood there in the lobby for 30 minutes with the receptionist right in front of me, asked for the direct number to the next office. And then as soon as she showed on her system that it had been delivered, I called you know, same thing, waiting. I called three times right there standing next to the desk and eventually got a hold of someone. They said, oh, we haven't received it yet. And I said, well, here's the confirmation number that it's been sent. Could you expedite this? And then they just label it expedited. You just have to ask and then they do it or you mark it urgent. I forgot what the label was. And I ended up getting in the same day the second time. Somewhere else, I had to drive 35 minutes to the other side of town. But again, if you walk in and act like you know what's going on, and that you are confidently urgent, they have the ability to check boxes or uncheck them that they don't present as an option up front. So you have to know that I need x-rays first, but I have to set up my MRI as much as I can prior to the order so that you can turn that process around quick. Otherwise, it's two to three weeks in between each set. And now, right, like Jack said, you're out to six to seven weeks from injury without having clarification. I I 100% agree. And you're right, just being nice to the people and just sounding confident. It's like walking into a place with a staff or a security shirt. No one asks any questions if you Mm -hmm. look like you you belong there. And as long as you're you're like, all right, here's the process. And I totally agree. You cannot get an MRI without x-rays. That was my experience. So Mm -hmm. make just go through that process. Try to get x-rays as soon as you can. And then... 30 minutes later, like you mentioned, they will print, they will give you a CD, they will give you your records as needed. They'll fax them over to whoever else, what other treatment office you need to go to. But same day, you can schedule your MRI. And I actually have my uh, my, my schedule. So first, first time, or I got injured on May 29th, and that was on a Monday. I got my MRI on that same Friday, June 2nd. So four and a half days later, roughly, which is very, very quick. And it was all because I was persistent and I already had x-rays a day or two beforehand, like on Wednesday. 
Um, and I was doing a lot of driving back and forth to all the different offices. I could care less. I just wanted to get this part of the process started because I needed to know what was wrong with me. The x-rays won't show you if there's structural damage. And given the laceration that I had and, you know, completely immobile at that point, I didn't know, am I going to need surgery? Am I going to need whatever? I, I wanted to hear it from the orthopedic surgeon. And then, so they do the MRI on Friday and I had to return on the 6th. So the following Tuesday, four days later, and that is when I had my initial consultation. And that's when I found out that I had the uh, patellar fracture and that I just narrowly missed ending up needing surgery. So finding that out eight days into the process, as opposed to- Did the x-ray show any of that, by the way? Uh, He's like, you see this thing? I'm like, no, MRI definitely helped more. Um, But I I only saw the orthopedic surgeon on that first Tuesday, I, I had only seen, you know, the, uh, the assistants and, you know, the other staff at that point, but not the guy who's making the final call if I need surgery or not. Um, but yeah, so that was about eight days in and compared to eight weeks waiting for that, I think it was well worth being a little bit pushy to, to force my way into an open appointment. You just need to be flexible those first couple of weeks. Like your job, it, you can probably find a way, even if you have to use a little bit of vacation time or whatever, just get it done, have a little peace of mind. And the sooner you, mm-hmm. you have that peace of mind of how severe it is, and like it's still a severe injury. It was 90% of my kneecap that was fractured and I had this big cut and I was immobile. I was still on crutches and everything and had stitches that wouldn't come out for another week after that even. It was just very nice to hear early on that I didn't need surgery. So that was that was one big takeaway that I would give. So the only other piece I want to inject here about this process so far is be specific about like how acute the injury is, even if you're wrong. It's kind of like how Jack said, coming in saying, I, I hurt my knee versus I think I need a meniseptomy or I think I have ligament damage versus it's PCL MCL. Even if you're wrong, it gets you in the door quicker. Otherwise you futz around with all the things it can be and they'll want to refer to PT or refer to this person. You just come and say, this is what I believe it is with the possibility it's this. And if you go into imaging with, it's probably MCL, but it could be meniscus. They're going to know what to look for right away, but you're not going to get rung through the ringer more. They, they'll send you directly to the person that can help you. And if you have a specific thing, you get in quicker than if you have a vague issue. Yep. Even if you're wrong. Even if you're wrong. You're still, you sound smarter than you are at that point. And the doctor probably was like, yeah, this guy has no idea what he's talking about, but at least got you past that first barrier and got you through the door. Yeah. I mean, th- think of it if you went to, to a used car salesman and said, I'd like a car with four doors, please. <laughs> Versus you went and said, Look, I'm looking at the Corolla. It's going to cost a little less. And I also understand that the horsepower on this one sits a little nicer. And what I really like about the transmission, and, and then they're like, all right, I'm not just going to jerk this guy around. Even if you're wrong about some of the things, if you just speak some of the jargon, you're going to be taken more seriously. Yeah, I, I actually looked it up and I didn't know necessarily where the mcl versus the lcl versus the pcl and stuff were and i i went mm-hmm. in there when i was my, just requesting the the first um the, the mri basically early on and i was like well it's on the outside i think these are the ligaments that i might have hurt so that could have possibly led to getting a little bit of fast faster service so your next step then i can personally vouch for and this is the part i think that it's important for people to realize is you immediately turned and reached out to everyone who's ever like done anything related to your legs. Like I got a message. I know Nicole got a message. I know anyone that's been having any knee related issue that you've ever met, you reached out to them right away. 
And that's, I think, probably the outside of scheduling everything, it's the next most important thing. And you did it correctly. You got everyone's advice right from the start. And even though a lot of it may not have been even pertaining to your injury or useful, you heard what they did wrong from the start. Like, I don't know how to help you here, but what I would avoid is blank. And you reached out to everyone in your network. Yep. hundred percent. Um, I, I reached out to even people like Leon and he didn't do anything specifically to his knee. His was more, uh, his shin that he had an injury. So I knew it wasn't the same type, but I knew it was affecting his running at that point, having to come back. And the other thing besides just texting 50 people, I also put out, um, just a Facebook store or, uh, yeah, or not Facebook, uh, Instagram story. And I was like, has anybody ever, you know, dealt with a knee injury? What is the best type of cross training that you have found in order just to maintain a basic level of fitness? Cause I knew I was going to lose fitness during this time, like in terms of peak ability, but I was like, what machines give you the most bang for your buck? I'm not going to be running for a while. And the amount of creative ideas that people gave me, like even great physical therapists and stuff, they were like, Whoa, that's a, that's a pretty cool, pretty cool idea. Um, I, I wish that I remembered, I, I should have looked it up right beforehand, but I got a suggestion to end up going, uh, or going to the store and getting a skateboard so that you can row, you hook your good leg up standard in the straps, and then you just put your bad leg on a rower and that keeps it straight the entire time. And I imagine if you had surgery on your leg, it's the same deal. You're, you just want a lo- basically a locked out knee um, so that you're not bending it with every single time that you're pulling and, and returning with the rower. And I, that was just one of the things where I was like, holy crap, there are some smart people out there who have been through this before. So I'm just going to listen to them because this is my first big sitting out injury. Like I've, I've cross trained before a couple times, like when I've had a few things flare up, but this was like a need to see the doctor bad injury and just people were so helpful. So then you took that and how did you build out a plan? And my first knee surgery, it was a really well-executed faulty plan because it was based around information that didn't apply to me. All the studies I was reading and all the protocols I was trying to find on athletes, they were all 18 to 24 years old. And so their timelines didn't apply to me. And I took him as if they did. And I tried to force the timeline rather than feeling. And it didn't go well. So how did you approach setting your rehab protocol? Because we really want to schedule our rehab, but our body doesn't care what's on the schedule for the day. So how did you approach that? Yeah. So I think physical therapists, they're well worth your time going to PT instead of trying to do this on your own, because they are much more experienced on the topic. If, if you're able to get that through insurance or even out of pocket, I can't highly enough recommend physical therapists. I didn't realize like how the body just kind of does its thing when you're healthy. You don't, you don't think about firing your quad at this time or, you know, making a certain basic movement patterns that are just so simple when you're healthy. And then as soon as you're injured, it's like, I literally can't squeeze my left quad. Why is that happening? I'm, I'm doing it with my right. I feel like I'm doing the same exact thing, but just the relearning how to do basic movement. I wouldn't have been able to do that without a physical therapist. So I, I have on my sheet Thursday, June 7th. So that was 10 days after my injury. That was when I had my first physical therapy appointment. And that literally just entailed sitting on like a, a seat or like a propped up chair and taking a towel and trying to bring my knee back as far as I could before it started being painful. And I think as, as runners and people have done OCR, like you, you can kind of, 
any, anyone who's an endurance athlete knows the difference between like pain versus discomfort. You need to know like, okay, it actually is okay to go past here, but going to the point where it's painful and might actually do damage to a healing thing, like a physical therapist will make sure that you don't go past that point and that, you know, you have these, this certain protocol this for this day. And I can easily go into, um, you know, the process of physical therapy, cause it's been about 10 weeks of it and I can go through the progression of it if you want and, and what's, what's worked, what just general themes that have worked. Um, if, if you want to go down that route. Yeah. So sure. the, actually one, one other thing that happened with me. So I, I ended up going to physical therapy and I mentioned Lacey, she recommended this guy, Pat, and I, I was with him for three weeks, two times a week, um, every Tuesday and Thursday. And then he ended up switching to a different practice like three weeks in. So I was like, oh, great. The guy who I know for sure is going to help because he's already helped one of my friends get through a, a torn ACL. He's gone. Now I'm just going to get randomly assigned with someone. Um, and he recommended another person at the practice, uh, this guy, Ryan Schmidt. And I've been with him ever since for the past six, seven weeks or so. And he just knows how to push me like at, at right up until the point where it's like, you probably shouldn't do one more rep. Like he, he, he knew how to balance everything with that. And he, he also had, um, he's a cyclist, but he's run in the past and he, he just, and he was a basketball player. Like he understands how the body moves as opposed to being like, if you find a physical therapist who mainly focuses on this old lady fell out of the tub and hurt her hip. Like I would recommend trying to find a physical therapist who does your sport, or at least is, you know, they'll understand why you want to come back as a runner or why you want to come back as a certain athlete. And and I think that having a good match there is very important because the, the range of physical therapists, like, and what their specialties are, it, it really is a, a big difference. Um, How do you find like, what's your recommendation? Because I think if anybody gets anything out of this conversation, we could stop now. There's going to be one to five people who needed to hear how to get in the door quicker. Like somebody listening is going to get enough out of this. Like we didn't expect to talk about the process of like getting help. That wasn't our plan today. My plan was to talk about cross training and we're almost, we're 50 minutes in. We haven't even said the word until now, but I think that's an important thing for people to hear. So like, how do you find the right, how do you find the right physical therapist? Like, did your doctor your recommend somebody or did you, did you go pioneer off on your own uh, aside from your recommendation, I guess? Yeah. That, um, so I basically looked what was in network for insurance reasons because cost does matter. If I'm going to go two times a week for 10 to 20 weeks, however long it was scheduled to be that adds up really quickly. So I, I made sure I found someone who was in network, um, looked at the facility and, you know, they had Alter G treadmills. I knew I wanted to come back as a runner and kind of like when you're picking out a new gym, it's like, find out, do they, are they like a bodybuilder gym or, you know, is it a planet fitness or is it a, a gym that's going to allow you to do hybrid training or running, or do they have a 30% treadmill? You, you just need to see, do they have the equipment you will need when you eventually get to the point where you're going to return to action a little bit. So I think that that was one of the things that I did. Um, and it was definitely, they have a, they have a nice facility and, so between the recommendation and seeing that their staff had several people when I Googled and looked at their bios and stuff who have a running background or, uh, you know, were athletes as opposed to just kind of regular therapists um, or, or for, for people who aren't athletes, therapists for those people, that made the difference. And actually, I, I went, um, it's about a 20 minute drive to get to PT for me. And there was another place that my orthopedic surgeon recommended that was four minutes from the house. I'm like, this is perfect. I barely have to drive. It's like just down the street. 
And I went in there and I asked their front desk when I was setting up an appointment um, because I wanted to test out a couple PT places because Lacey said that she settled on them after her third, that was her third place that she went. So I'm like, okay, maybe I should test drive some of these places. And I set up, you know, an appointment at one place on a Thursday and then a Tuesday for a different place. And I went to this one and I was like, do you have anybody who has a running background or endurance sports background? And they said no. And I kind of just got the vibe that it wasn't going to work for me. And they didn't have, you know, alter G treadmills. So I, I just bailed on it. I canceled my appointment and I was like, I'm only going to go to this one now that I know that this facility has what I need. And they have a few specialists who kind of can relate to why I want to get back and what it takes to be a runner. Yeah. That's, I'm glad you brought that up to talk about finding the people who understand how you're going to use your body. After my second one, I asked because I had done my first rehab myself. So I asked for recommendations of people I could talk to specifically for this. And the guy gave me some recommendations and he said, you know what, go with this person. He's an endurance athlete himself and specializes with endurance athletes. And so I went, same thing, went to the office, went to talk and it turned out he was a cyclist and specializes in cyclists. And I think right away, most people then would, and I started to think that, all right, this is going to be great. And then as they were talking about what they're doing, I realized he is an expert at non-impact, but impact never enters into his equation because it doesn't need to outside of just normal life impact. And everything I do requires impact. I want to play basketball, but I want to do hybrid racing. I want to do trail running. I want to do OCR and some roads. All of it, you hit the ground. And so I ended up getting my best advice from someone who specializes in soccer because it's endurance related, but it's all dynamic movement on your feet impacting the ground, but for a minimum of 90 minutes. So finding someone who, if you can't find your sport, not the adjacent sports, but the adjacent, the adjacent movement of your sport. Endurance isn't enough. Cyclist, I'm sure he, I'm sure he could have done fine, but like swimming, biking, rowing, they're, they're not the same as running, even though we're all working on the same cardiovascular system. Yeah. hundred percent agree. Um, it, it was pretty eye opening because Ryan, he has a, ba- a basketball background. He just did the Leadville 100 bike race. Um, so he's still currently doing that kind of stuff, but he understands like landing patterns and takeoff and, you know, when to do one legged drills and stuff. And, um, that progression is kind of what I figured would be good talking about. And this is specifically for a knee injury. Every, I, I, I am not a doctor. I would not recommend just blanketly saying that what I'm doing is, is correct. Um, but from what I found, it was a very slow process. And I feel like as distance runners, we can kind of relate to that, but like, we know if you want a good plan, it might take 12 to 16 weeks to really follow through and then your progression's done in your buildup um, instead of being like, well, it feels better. Maybe I can just add like a little bit of jumping. I, I didn't run a step until he told me I could run a step. I didn't push that I want to go on the Alter-G treadmill. I was like, when it when the time comes, I will gladly do it, but I have no reason to rush the process because you know more about this than I do. And so just kind of trusting that they'll put you in the right direction once you find that right person. Don't don't go doing stuff on your own. Don't go look up on WebMD that you saw this athlete did this and you know it worked out perfectly because you are different than them. Your injury is different than them. And I think that that was a, a big eye opener. I, I remember early on, I looked up um, patellar fracture and there was some study on soccer players and it was like their average recovery time. And it said, but I think it was something like 80% of them returned within seven months and, you know, to 
to game action and they were pro soccer players over in Europe and in college in the U S and like seven months was the timeline. So in my mind, I'm like, Oh crap, I've got seven months. And that's like next year when I'm going to be able to do it. So I just kind of embraced that it might take a while. And little did I know that it, it was a lot faster than seven months. It was closer to three before I was able to start running again. I'm, I'm nowhere into like being able to run regularly. I'm, I'm I think 25 minutes was the longest I did a, a few days ago. Um, and then I took two days off running because I'm slowly adding back, uh, you know, impact into the, into my repertoire, but yeah, just don't rush it. Just, there are so many small things. Um, and, and I actually talked with Ryan today when I had PT before this, and I was like, what's the, the first thing that you would work on regardless of if it's, you know, a knee injury, an ankle injury, what any other type of thing. And he said that closed chain stuff, like working your core stability, the stuff that you don't think about because it happens naturally when you have two good legs or whatever, that's the kind of stuff every single time that he would focus on before you even think about doing some explosive open chain stuff. Um, the number of times that I was just standing there and I had like a, uh, the one where like you move your leg out. I forget if that's abduction or adduction. Abduction. Think like an alien is going to abduct you and take you away. You're moving away from your body. Abduct. I haven't heard that one. That's fantastic. And adduct. Adduct, you're adding to your body. You're pulling in. So you're using your adductors when you pull uh, in. Adding. And you're abducting away when you push out. That's the one I've heard. Continue. I've never thought about being Alien. probed. Yeah. yeah, I think about it all the time. <laughs> I'm sure. Now just remember that. You're being abducted. You're going away from your body. Yeah. Yeah. But the number of times that I would do like 15 or 20 reps of just abduction. And I'm like, why are we doing this? This isn't hard. Like, but you need to, like, there were a couple times when I just feel a little bit shaky or like my, my butt hadn't been worked for a while or, and single leg, leg press, for instance, or it looked like your butt had been worked a lot. Well, thanks. Thanks, Ryan. Um, but yeah, he, uh, it, my, my PT just kind of slowly introduced stuff and then it would go into cycling where I, they have a Watt bike for warmups and, I started off like five minutes and my initial thing was like, go a little bit. Nope. You can't do a full revolution. Keep going back. Nope. You got to turn back. Cause I wasn't able to spin without like having like a clicking or something. And that was, that was for a good first week. And then he's like, you can do it. And so I'm like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll go past there. And then suddenly I'm like, oh, I can do 30 RPMs, which is agonizingly slow but I knew that I could get past that discomfort and then suddenly 40 and then 50. And within two weeks, I was up to 80 RPMs pretty comfortably during a warm up. So like just that gradual reintroduction instead of rushing the process and thinking that whatever's online and what some athlete has had to happen, just slow it down. Don't rush it. Do the basics. Jack, Jack, can I, I want to take a step back. I think we're at the hundred foot view and I want to, I want to bring the listeners to the 10,000 foot view right here. Um, I didn't even plan to talk about physical rehab, about the doctoring process today. I mentioned that earlier. That wasn't part of the plan, but yet we're still there. And I think this is very important, right? Like you need to, you need to prevent the problem from happening again. And you're actually the exception, not the rule, because you had an impact trauma. Most people listening are going to have an overuse injury, which is caused by the very thing they like to do, which is running. And in your case, it's actually even less important than the overuse injury 
person who needs to rehab and prehab and get it right because it's the act of running that injured them. You made a dumb decision by choosing to rollerblade, like a general, and you got injured, right? Someone call it cosmic justice. <laughs> cosmic justice. But, but it's a blunt force trauma. It's an impact injury, not an overuse injury. And in your case, you're, you're, you're making the body of the car look nice again and perform nice after a car accident, right? But the car was running fine, so to speak. And so for most listening who are having to cross-train through injury, like there are some serious things that probably need to be addressed. And even if it's tendinopathy in your quad or it's runner's knee or it's Achilles tendinitis where people just keep managing at home, I'll just stay off it a few days. I'll ice it here. I'll do my rolling, all those little things. Like those are actually even more of a candidate for help or at least equally as you because everybody's like, well, I didn't ram and do a bridge. I don't need physical therapy. I'd be like, you've had Achilles tendonitis for six months and it's you've only been able to run like twice a week. Yeah, you actually need physical therapy more than Jack Bauer does. And you need to more fix those imbalances yeah. like, like your PT Ryan was telling you. So I just want to like step back and, and be like, this is important for everybody. Just because you didn't get in a car accident in quotes, like and only your oil needs to be changed, let's call it, like you need to go see the mechanic regardless. And so I think it's very important for people to know that we're not just talking about impact trauma. The other things are equally or more important to be following the same path that you're following. Let's prevent this from happening again, so to speak. So I just want to like step back and make sure that got across. Oh my goodness. I'm like a proud dad at his kid's first T-ball game. <laughs> Kirk's using car analogies <laughs> over here. I'm just, I'm glowing here. You are smiling. This a is a great bit. day. And they're really. good car analogies. They're not just bad. Yeah. Ones, yeah. But you, you understand what I'm getting at. Yes. No, I, I completely agree. Actually, while I was there earlier today, um, there was a woman who she's 48 years old. And the first time I've seen her, she just won gold earlier this year at the USA Masters long jump. And she got silver in the javelin. She's a master's athlete, still crushing it. Um, she said she jumped about five meters at 48 years old. Pretty legit, pretty, pretty okay. explosive. Wow. Um, and she was there because she's dealing with Achilles issues. And she's like, I just need to get her treated. I've tried a lot of stuff on my own, but I need someone to dry needle me and I need to go through rehab. So if someone of that caliber still performing high at an older age, like if she thinks, if she sees that there's a reason to see a physical therapist, and that's definitely an acute co competition related injury, as opposed to just a, a free blunt impact type injury, like I had, I think that there's even more, more justification why pretty much anybody who's dealing with a, a little bit of an issue should go there. Yeah. And I just didn't want people listening to be like, well, I didn't run into a bridge or I didn't have this, yeah. you know, one off accident. So how does this apply to me? It actually applies more to you if you're dealing with a nagging running injury. It's like even more mm -hmm. pertinent. So I just want to make sure that was addressed. Yeah. We're about an hour late into mentioning that, but I, I agree that you're, <laughs> you nailed it with that. Cool. And, and you mentioned doing all the prehab and stuff. If you have these nagging injuries, Bracken, you can probably attest to this because you've seen me at some races more recently than Kirk. Um, I'm always that guy doing band work and like dynamic warmups and stuff. And people make fun of me because I'm doing monster walks and, you know, glute bridge and stuff before a race. And a lot of people just kind of just do a 10 minute shakeout run, do some strides, some couple pickups, and then they're ready to go. But I've always been that guy who would rather over warm up than under warm up. And I think that that could have played a role as well because just being a little bit more mobile and and doing the the boring work that no one likes to do 
that's probably helped me from being injured in the past. Cause this is like my real first bad injury that I've had to deal with. Um, and it probably, you know, had I not crashed into it, uh, I, I might not have like ever had an, another injury to deal with. Um, just cause I, I've been doing the little things for a while. And I think that that goes a long way. And Bracken, I think, or Kirk, one of you, when you had Chad Trammell on, uh, you were talking about how Chad had like a four mile warm up, and you're like, what the heck is this guy doing? Like, why is he, why isn't he just going into it? And that was something that always stuck with me. It's like, if you have a longer warm up, you're probably going to avoid injury because your body's ready to go when it's go time. And I, and I think that that's something that I've always done through the years. So regardless of your current injury situation, I would still recommend like get a good warm up, do the little things, do a cool down, do, do the stuff that no one wants to do. It's not just the sexy stuff during the workout that's going to make the biggest difference. It's the the little boring band work and, and drills that make a big difference. Yeah, the boring stuff allows you to do this sexy stuff with no risk. It's true. The piddly stuff is your Cairo friends, who are now my Cairo friends after meeting them at the wedding. Yeah. Um, well, why don't we do this? Let's wrap up this rehab thing, and then let's um, let's wrap up the medical side. Let's call it, and then let's dive into the the other stuff. Is that fair? Do you have any yep. like what else would you want to want the good people of the running public to know about that process? I, I was just going to give general timelines. So I didn't start hopping on the ultra g treadmill and when i started it it was like a minute run minute walk minute run minute walk that was like eight weeks in for an injury like this i'm in my 13th week of recovery last week during my 12th that's when i did my first run so i would say if you have a a knee injury best case 12 weeks where you're going to be able to like have a little bit of free reigns but most people it's like 16 to 18 weeks i I think i was I, i was doing a full pt session on my own every single night. I have not missed a PT session, whether it's in person with Ryan or on my own at the gym at night throughout this whole process. So just stay consistent with it. And you know, your, your timeline might move up a little bit. Brecken, what do you have? Like you've been through this crap so much. Like you've had just a whirlwind of like three years. Like if anybody can speak to this, it's you. Um, yeah, even unfortunately more than Jack right now, although it sounds like Jack really nailed it, but what do you have anything to add? Cause I, I haven't been through that process yeah. recently, knock on wood. But like, do you have any other things that come to mind? Well, I kept screwing things up because I I had blinders on. I would research my acute injury so well, and then I would build that, and I would let other things slip. Back when we talked about building a training plan and a progression, talking about you don't take threshold out in order to add in VO2 max work. You add it in, and you keep some form of the threshold present. I was doing the opposite. I took things out in order to focus all my time on one thing and I'd create an imbalance and then something would atrophy slightly and it would be more than I'd expect. And so I came back from knee and tore a calf. I came back from knee and I got a hernia. I came back from hernia and I got quadricep tendinopathy because whatever I wasn't focusing on, I didn't think about. And so Jack's whole thing of, I always do the piddly stuff. I didn't do any of the piddly stuff. And I only, and then I went all in on the piddly thing I needed to do. And I let all those other things go. So like from the unsuccessful side, I've learned what to avoid and what to not avoid. And I've learned like the mistakes. That's, that's probably my, and then I've talked about them on here, but yeah, the big thing is that whatever your acute injury is, Everything that supports that injury has to be targeted with the same intensity that the acute injury gets targeted with. Because I finally learned that whatever you injure, 
if you're obsessive about fitness or competition or staying healthy, like the three of us are to some extent, that area is going to be fine eventually. Most likely, it'll be stronger than it started eventually. But everything around it isn't if you don't address it. And like with my calf, I injured my knee. I had surgery on my knee. I worked on my quad and my glutes and my hips so well that when I came back, they were all able to put out more wattage than they ever could while my calf was at the weakest place it had been in years. And so something had to break down in the structure and that's what gave out right away. So not having blinders on during rehab because we think about, I'm going to rehab my ACL. No, you have to rehab your entire body with an emphasis on ACL. I think that's my single biggest. That combined with what we've already talked about, which is establish your goals and then follow your body's timeline. You just can't, like, I saw four to six weeks, four to six weeks, four to six weeks. I was 12 weeks running with so much pain before I scrapped my rehab plan on knee one. So follow the protocol, not a timeline. Did you use a PT, Bracken? You keep saying rehabbing, but did you do PT or were you on your own? First one I did all on my own. The second one, I used my resources to develop a PT plan, but I didn't go to PT. Do you think you would have been better off? In some regards, yeah, probably, because even a like a basic PT, someone who's not sports specific, they know how to check the low-hanging fruit boxes. And I was so focused on like the prettiest piece of fruit there that I forgot about the low-hanging fruit. And so even if they weren't even a good PT, they would have done the duh things. And I didn't do the duh. I tried to do the really nice high-tech things. And I, so yeah, I would have been, I mean, this is the issue I get into everything, right? Our website crashes because I built it rather than pay someone. <laughs> like it's really nice until it breaks. My body crashes because I built it rather than allowing someone else to help me build it. That's that's kind of the trouble I get myself into. So, but I I expanded the network of who I allowed to uh, keep me from hurting myself in the second one, and then built the plan off that. I'll just, I'll just add one last thing, then we'll transfer in Kirk's direction. You kept mentioning calendar timeline all that four to six weeks became 12 weeks i did not for one second focus on a calendar i just let it happen and suddenly the calendar just sneaks up on you and it just happens rather than being like my leg better feel good in four weeks because that's when i'm at and running again like don't don't put Mm -hmm. a timeline on anything it never ends up or it seemed to work out a lot better when i didn't put the pressure on me of you need by x date this to happen We're, we're not in the nfl calendar where you have a 17 game schedule. And like, if if you're not back by this date, you're not playing this year. It's like, just take it slow. Let the calendar happen instead of try to force it. Yeah. When you, uh, when you realize you got something that's for real on the injury front, you should go, you should cancel all your races, like on the calendar, erase them all, clean the slate. Don't put the pressure of time to cause you to rush the process. The hardest part is the emotional investment that people are like, well, I can be back in time for West Virginia in August if everything goes perfectly and they still book the Airbnb and they're emotionally invested. And then it always takes longer. You read online, a stress fracture is four to six weeks. In what world is a stress fracture four to six weeks? Then they don't talk about the fact that when you return to running, I'm going to run six minutes three times a week in week one, and then I'm going to run eight minutes in week two. Like People set unrealistic expectations and they end up in emotional turmoil and disappointed because they've created these expectations or these these timelines. And so my mm-hmm. advice is to erase the calendar, let it tell you when it's ready. Don't, and I think you, you nailed it. Um, and I'll make a transition here on the emotional piece. Um, so 
just you're protecting yourself, right? If you set expectations and then you're not able to meet them, you end up disappointed. And so in transition here, Jack Bauer crashes into bridge, scares the locals, goes to rehab, realizes this is for real. When does Jack Bauer quit crying in the corner and get back to work? What was that like? I had one single time where I felt down in the dumps. The rest of it's just been straight up focus. It was when I was sitting in urgent care with three different ice packs, one on my nose, two on my knee, just <laughs> sitting there like, what did I get myself into? And just, I'd, I'd made the mistake while sitting in urgent care of just Googling like, what's the typical ACL recovery? Like, I didn't know what part of me I hurt. I was just only looking at the worst case before even bothering getting a diagnosis. And I didn't even have stitches in me at that point. I shouldn't have done that. And that was the only time that I ever felt bad. But as soon as I got that MRI, even before I saw the doctor to who told me that I wouldn't need surgery, I already decided like, I'm not going to feel bad for myself. I'm just going to treat this like a buildup for a race and just trust whoever's telling me what to do because they know more than me. And I think that having that positive attitude and not like a happy-go-lucky positive attitude, but like, you can do this and you've seen a lot of like John Alvin, he missed a bunch of time with, with a, you know, he, he got surgery on his toe. Lindsay Webster broke her foot uh, and still got second in world championships. We've had a ton of people like Corinna. You just had her on. She's had a torn ACL, uh, Nicole Miracle, same deal. Like you, you have so many examples of athletes coming back. Sometimes it takes three months. Sometimes it takes a full calendar year, sometimes more. I'm like, whatever, I'll get back to it. Just, you just need to do it smart or else, it's just going to be an endless circle of like, oh, I rushed it too soon. Now I have to start over again. And I did not want to get in that endless loop. I wanted to do it right. So I think staying positive and knowing that there have been other athletes who have been injured and made a, a smooth comeback because they trusted the process. That was what I really focused on rather than like doomsday and like a pity party. It's like anything else. The unknown is always the scariest prospect. Athletes, soldiers, like the, they all have the ability to handle about anything if they can wrap their mind around it. Like as soon as you accept what the outcome can be, all right, let's just get there now. It's the unknown that's terrifying. Yeah, it to me, it almost seemed like, you know, like the death race or battle bunker, any or not battle bunker, uh, like go rock games where you just don't have known events. You don't know what's going to happen. You just have to go, but the outcome isn't known until you're there. That's so different mm -hmm. than, Kirk, you're running a 5,000 meter race on a track. Here's your... Decafit. Here's the exact distances and the exact movements. You know, I'm I'm used to that world. I'm used to here's the the confines, like and not a bunch of unknowns. I like having knowns. So it was a very different experience to me. Um, dealing with a lot of how bad could my injury be? Like, what am I going to be in four weeks? Am I when when do I stop using crutches? When can I start turning a bike properly while pedaling? Like, there there were so many unknowns. But I didn't want to rush it. And I think that that really helped me a whole lot. So that's something to keep in mind for people who are hurt. Well, we talk about the PT side, right? So we covered that, not specifics, but that. But I'm curious to talk to you about the output side, the metabolic stimulus, mm -hmm. the aerobic conditioning, not letting that go. And I've done it, uh, knock on wood, not in recent years. I use cross training to stay healthy, but not to, sup not to replace right now, thankfully. 
Um, Bracken's been through it like, ugh, like over and over again in the last three years. When did you, you crash? When did you hit your first workout with any sort of purpose? How long after that? And then let's talk about, let's talk about the details of it, right? Like, I think that's important for people to understand. And Bracken and I have done cross training episodes before. So people have our take and we'll interject, right? Bracken, I'm sure. But like, I want to hear your, your take on it. So first workout back after injury, like the whole pity party thing, somebody gets injured and then they don't do shit for two weeks and then they start over and they're apathetic about it. And it sounds like you were very purposeful, I believe with your plan. So, um, Mm -hmm. walk us through that. Yeah. So got hurt May 29th. I did basically nothing for that first week besides go to the gym and use that stationary hand crank, which is horrible. The armor. I, Cannot stress how ineffective it is, in my opinion, at least if you're trying to maintain any type of cardiovascular shape. How high did you get your heart rate on that thing? I was going the highest I ever saw it. And I was going like 95, (laughs) our revolution, like just basically like a speed bag at that point. And I got up to 124. That's the highest that I was able to get it. And I was selling out. And the only thing that happens by doing that is now you feel worse the next day and you can't get your heart rate up as high because you just sold out and your arms are dead and you have nothing you can do besides use your arms. So after about four or five days of that, I was like, nope, not happening. And I I did some air bike um, where I was just sitting on the seat, put my legs on a peg. And it's hard getting onto that when you have crutches and stuff and you're moving around. Um, but I did that and I was able to get up to like 45, 50 uh, RPMs. And that's about it. That's all all you can really do. And I was doing some one-legged stuff and I was like, I don't know, is this going to create some imbalance? And I ended up doing a little bit more research. And then out of nowhere, Jared Newby, he saw that I was asking for like advice on machines. And he sent me some article where there's actually some research that if you have an injured side and you do one-legged or one-armed, whether no matter where you get hurt, if you go hard doing that other side, it actually prevents atrophy on the other side from being as bad as it possibly could be if you're just sedentary the whole time. So like looking into that a little bit more, talking with my PTs and I decided I'm like, you know what, even if I can only use one side, I'm going to just use some intensity because I don't want to just become all doughy and just sit here for the next who knows how long. So I was doing like one-legged air bike, getting up to 65 RPMs, go ahead and try that. Let me know how that feels. Doesn't sound that fast. It's horrible. Um, and then um, one other thing, my first uh, hard workout, I did seated skier and that was on June 7th or June 8th. So about two weeks or so after the injury and seated skier, I just found a 24 inch box. I went over to Tamara Dayhill's place. So very thankful that she was able to let me use some of the equipment there because my gym didn't have a skier at the time. And I, my paces were about two flat to 205 per 500. And my workout, yeah, my, my workout was a minute 30 and hard and then 45 seconds easy. So, but a two to one ratio work to rest. And I was going two flat to 205. I did a workout. You know what drives me nuts? Maybe, I want to interject really quick. I want to interject. You know what drives me yeah. nuts? Bracken, you're going to have to agree with me here. And I have people also who are entering the hybrid space for the first time and they say the same thing. I don't have that. <laughs> yeah. I can't do that because I don't have that at home. My gym doesn't have that. I I can't do it. What do you mean you can't do it? You idiot. 
Go find it or buy it secondhand on Facebook Marketplace. There is a way to do it. Don't sit at home and do nothing because you don't have that. Continue. Sorry, just had to say that. Look at you. I, w- I will double down on what you said. You can find a way. Yeah. And I feel it myself until you realize, just use your network. Yeah. Use your use your big boy pants. Yeah. Use, your, use your critical thinking and find it. Get on your horse and ride your horse to the nearest place knock on the door and see if they have it like jack did yep with finding yeah, pt flip your rower upright and use it as a skier i didn't do that but yeah you could um but yeah tamara lives 30 to 40 minutes depending on traffic away from me i'm the far south end she's the far north end i still made a trip out there once or twice a week just to just to get it done so totally possible but bottom line I reset my expectations due to the new movement pattern. I, I did almost that same exact workout about a week ago, and I averaged 146 on the ski erg. So it's about 20 seconds slower seated versus, right, versus standing and you know doing it at full force. But I was able to get my heart rate into the high 150s while seated and you know favoring my leg, making sure I wasn't doing anything stupid there. You can still do intensity. And I, I honestly think that the skier, uh, initially I thought that having the rower skateboard combo, which I described earlier, was the best single modality for a machine when coming back. I think it's actually the skier now that I think about it. And I, I find it the most effective because you can stay seated and sometimes the wheels of the rower like will just jerk to the left just a little bit. And suddenly every 10 pulls, you have to like kick it over real quick to reset. It's just a little bit of a pain. Talk about heart rate stimulus and all those, if you could, quickly. Best bang for your buck. Yeah, so I was I, I, that, that was what I was going to say. Best bang for your buck. I think it's good being able to do both of those because doing all pull or all push, like you, you have to have that balance. You don't want to overdo it. If you're doing all like, right for instance my left leg was injured when i was rowing and i did some you know two minute at at threshold pace rows rushed 40 seconds or so and do that for 10 12 rounds whatever whatever the workout might have been you do 20 minutes of very hard one-legged rowing your butt is going to be on fire the next day and so having the skier as an option especially seated in that in that case now you can give your butt a, a, break, a break the next day. And now you're using your triceps a little bit more and your lats as opposed to your biceps pulling and, and your glute while you're driving a little bit. So I think having those two are the trade-off. And then I, I, I typically warm up on the air bike, but I found that doing like hard air bike intervals wasn't as as effective. I think that if you can fit those three machines in, use the air bike as like a warm up, but do your intensity on the ski erg and uh, on the rower or with the skateboard combo, you can get your heart rate 95% of the way where you would during a normal, properly healthy two-legged workout. I, I found those to be the, the best options out there. Yeah. I only had the, the the fan bike and it was tough to do intervals because you blow out your arms so quick. Yeah. It's not as bad as that, the hand erg, yeah. but it's similar. And you're right with the push and pull, being able to alternate that is really important. Again, I only had the fan bike for the vast majority of it, and I had to alternate days where I was pushing on it, and then when I would pull backwards against the handles. Sometimes I'd even flip my grip underneath and pull back, because otherwise it was just like the same stress on the same joint over and over, and 
Like that last thing I want to do is develop a new injury because I'm overusing one thing that really isn't even sports specific. Yeah. I, I just looked through my Strava and most of my workouts when I was doing threshold, if I'm running, I'm like 168 to like 174. That's kind of like my zone where I'm, I'm pushing the limits at that point. I was getting in like the 160 to 166 zone. So I was within about five beats a minute and realistically using machines, you're it's not going to be a one-to-one ratio. Like if you're on the bike or you're on the skier, the rower, it's not the same as running because running you're using your entire body at that point. It's, it's more of a demand energy wise. So your heart rate is not, it's going to be lower at the equivalent all out effort on the rower or the skier versus running. That's just kind of what I've always found. Do you guys kind of agree with that? Um, I think on spin bike and skier, yes. On rower and fan bike, I think, the added arm work balances out the lack of impact in fighting gravity. Personally, air bike, I I can get it very close to running. Two legged air bike, I I'll, I'll give you that. But I feel like skier, I might be like five to eight beats a minute lower, same as as the rower. For sure. And spin bike, I'm closer to fifteen. Yeah. So I would just say, don't auto, if you're a heart rate trainer like I am, and a lot of people are, don't just automatically be like, oh well, I'm normally training at one thirty five while running. I need to get on the rower and be at 135, like maybe do 125. It, it's probably going to, you, mm-hmm. you should know how your body feels. You might look down at your watch and you're like, oh, it's a little bit lower, but you'll know, is this an effort that I can sustain for a 60 minute easy day, for instance? Probably not. So s- slow it down a little bit. And on those in-between days, like I mentioned, I did, I focus more on PT rather than maintaining fitness because I wanted to make sure that when I am able to start adding fitness in my body's working properly. Like I, I did every single drill every single day. Like I, I did not, I have not taken one day off doing all those uh, on the in-between. Like normally I'll fill, you know, if I'm doing a hard workout on a Tuesday, Thursday, Wednesday might be a 45 to 60 minute easy run while injured. I've done 30 plus minutes of PT and then 20 to 30 minutes of, of just lower intensity, maybe 10 minutes on the bike, 10 minutes on the rower, 10 minutes on the seated skier, just kind of rotate a little bit. And that's what I've found, you know, my, my recommended protocol was. Well, let's talk Bracken's conjuring something up over there. I'm curious what you're doing. Probably looking at a workout log. No, I, I, I have a couple heart rate based training books. One's the Maffetone method. One's total heart rate training by I think Friel did that one. Um, but in one of them, the author stated that there is no zonal difference between modalities. I'm not buying that. And when I read it, I thought, that's weird. But maybe I just haven't maxed out my ability in those other areas. And now, 10 years later, I just don't buy it. But I was double checking which of these authors and professional coaches just told one of the most blatantly false statements I've ever seen in a, in a training book. But it doesn't really matter. I can look this up later. Yeah, I mean, if that was the case, then wouldn't everybody just literally just do a bunch of thrusters and heavy lifting just because their heart rate got up. They're like, Oh, that's the same as VO two max work. And stuff. it's like, just cause you have a, a heart rate response does not mean you're getting the same, you know, system response there. Right. And he was saying that swimming, biking, running, your zones are the same. 120 is 120 is 120. 180 is 180 is 180. And I just think that that's blatantly false. But anyway, I'm not going to sidetrack us. Well, from a standpoint of like what what your body's capable of doing, it's still capable of maxing at 200 beats a minute. So in theory, like systemically, 
you can get on board with that, but you've talked like you need to re- reset expectations. I, I find that like what happens the difference between running and let's say all out on the assault bike is you're going to have muscular fatigue set into the point where you can't sustain the heart rate for as long as you could while out tempo running. Let's say like if you're just on mm-hmm. the spin bike, your quads yep. are going to go to shit and maintaining 173 for me, which is my threshold is like, I'd have to put in a 12 out of 10 mental effort to keep it there. And eventually my quads just can't create that force anymore. And I'll, my heart rate, heart rate will drift the wrong direction. Yeah. So I assume you're outlining that a little bit too. Like that's something you experience. Yeah. Car- cardiac drift is a thing. You get hotter. Like it just, it takes more effort to sustain the same piece because of the heat load that, that goes on. And here's, here's another example. So this, this right here, heart rate got up to 168 during a workout and that was 12 by two minutes with 40 seconds break in between there on the rower. So 168, when I did my 2K row time trial earlier in the, the spring, my heart rate got up to 172. So, you know, within four beats a minute of my max two-legged, I was able to accomplish on a one-legged rower. So you can you can definitely do intensity. And I, I would also add threshold. You guys have talked about it. Just keep it in that threshold zone for the most part. Don't give up on your progressions like... I, I, Rich has helped me a lot with like skier progressions and stuff and just, just kind of giving some tips on how to keep some intensity in there instead of just forgetting about intensity while this whole process is going on. Cause it's easy to think like I'm hurt. I can't do fast stuff right now. It's like, you, you totally can. You actually probably should believe it or not. And I think that adding in that one, it broke up the monotony, but two, it allowed me to maintain some fitness. So that way, instead of having a 20% extra comeback, now I'm only 10% behind where I was before. And I think that if you keep that intensity piece in there, that doesn't have to be hard stuff. Like if you're doing four to eight minute repeats running for threshold, you might, you're probably not going to be able to do that on, on the skier or the rower. That's just a lot. But if you do some shorter intervals, minimize that rest and stuff, you can still get a pretty similar response on the machines and walk away from this whole rehab process in pretty good shape. Well, we talked about modalities. But that was the next question I was going to ask you is talking about how do you, how are, what process do you use to pick what you are doing for that day? Right? Like, okay, we get it. Like these things can induce a solid heart rate response, even if you're limited to, let's say one of your two legs. Um, but what's the, what's the thought process there? How do you decide, like, what is the most efficient way to cross train to keep fitness or build fitness when you're injured? For example, how do you make those decisions? Yeah, I I still think it comes down to, and I'm just going to use a random person who has like a knee surgery or something, not just my specific situation. I think the rotating machines don't overdo it. You don't want to be on the rower six days a week or on the skier six days a week. I think that my when I look back at my training log, it's pretty much been one day of hard rowing, skip a day with an easy day in between, uh, and then one day hard ski erg, and then an easy day in between, one day one-legged air bike, which gradually transitioned into two-leg air bike as I was able to regain motion and stuff during the the PT process, and then an easy day, and then I would take a, a full day off just to let my body recover. And I think that that helps as well because people... I've said it before on this, that everyone's got their eye on the calendar. Don't rush it. Like just because you, you didn't take time off before necessary or as often doesn't mean you shouldn't now. It's like your body's in a, a wounded state and you're, you're doing all this stimulus and a lot of it might be favoring your good side even more. So you, you don't want an overuse injury. Like you're going to lose a little bit of fitness first your your peak shape during this whole process. So it's okay to take time off your, your body probably needs it realistically and like regain 
good movement patterns and and you'll feel a little bit fresher. I, I think that making having those alternating days of just hard, easy, hard, easy, hard, easy, just switching machines for each of those, plus taking a day off each week, that was very, very helpful throughout this process. Yeah, when I was, uh, Bracken's muted, so there you go, you're pro. Go ahead. I haven't done that in <laughs> amateur in many days. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead and chime in. I was I was assuming I was up because well no because Bracken was on mute so I assumed he had nothing to say but it sounds like he did so go you are up go ahead well okay I'll go you go you go Bracken (laughs) my only comment to that was that when you're cross training it feels so much more mundane because you're not doing your normal activity that you forget you're already doing almost fifty percent more quality. Going every other day is a lot more quality work than you would normally do as a runner. Maybe not as a cyclist, but as a runner, it's already at least 30% more work than you're used to. So you can just rest easy knowing that I'm already doing more. I don't have to push that envelope at all. Nailed it. Yeah. And I think that since you don't have that impact piece with running, especially if you're doing like downhill trail running, there, when I was doing a lot of trail running, there were some weeks where I would do one intensity day because like that was a long downhill and that's all I've got. And you just can't stack intensity on that and expect to maintain or be healthy throughout the process. But with this, you're on a machine and then you have an easy day the next day and suddenly like you can just go hard again. It's it's very weird that I think 80-20 might favor more towards like 70-30. I still try to go very easy on my easy days because that's what's worked for me throughout my my athletic career for the most part since I kind of started introducing polarized training. But you definitely are right where you can shift more towards the intensity side than the easy side um, and get away with it because you're on machines without the impact. Mm-hmm. When I was, uh, I took five months off of running in 2020. It was my last injury. I had two fractures in my foot. Um, my Strava suffer score, it used to be called a suffer score, I think, before I joined Strava. Now it's your fitness score, I think, whatever. It just measures your output. When I was cross-training like a maniac, well-injured, my Strava, let's just call it a suffer score, hovered around 100, which in hindsight is very high, by the way. Uh, now I'm not injured and I'm running not as much as I want, but almost. And my Strava, in quotes, suffer score hovers around 70. I was more fit according to my cardiac output because I could more frequently hit metabolic stimulus of higher intensity because of the lack of impact and the faster recovery cycle. So being injured doesn't mean less work. A lot of times being injured means more work. And like if you can put your rose tinted glasses on. Right. More, well, in my case, it was actually more work too. I was doing four hour rides on the bike outside and all of those things. But like, okay. <laughs> like if yeah. you can look at it that way and you can be like, Hey, like this is actually an opportunity for me to build my engine, to put time under duress. Um, you can actually sort of embrace the cross training side of things. And I think it can be, I think it can be powerful for some people if you can look at it the right way. Yeah, here's another example of like the intensity and just how it happened. So when I started, um, May 29th was when I got hurt and I introduced the air bike about two and a half weeks later, one legged air bike. And when I, about early July was when I did my first air bike threshold and it was five rounds, 30 seconds hard, 30 seconds easy, two minutes break in between there. And this was with two legs at that point. And I held a maximum of any of those rounds, 75 RPMs, my first time doing that. A few weeks later, 
I was 80 to 82 RPMs every single round. And that's just over the course of a few weeks, just because I was keeping that intensity piece in there. I've got examples like that with the rower as well, where I was doing a minute on 40 seconds off roughly, and I was holding 146, 147 for, for just that early on. And I just did a workout that was 12 rounds, two minutes, 40 seconds rest. So basically double the intensity, the same rest. And I averaged like 146 a couple days ago for, for all those. So just stretching it out and just staying consistent and trusting the process. Same thing with the ski erg. It's like, I've, I've done one minute intervals and now I'm able to hold that same pace for twice as many rounds with a minute 30 now, instead, just, just doing a normal buildup. You're just a little bit limited in your options and you can't really run in between. You can still maintain a lot of fitness throughout this process. So, so that's, that's one thing that I was very surprised to see that the metrics kept going up despite my limitations at that time. Kirk, are we to the point where it's appropriate to ask how he's going to transition out of this or do we have more milk you want to squeeze out of these udders? I just had one last one about what he's talking about and then I did want to go to transition. So I'll just throw it at you right away then. So we really buttered you up with telling you how good your butt looked and Bracken talked about your veiny forearms <laughs> and it's hard to make a pale body look that good. I'll be honest. Like it's just not easy. So there's something going right. We don't have shadows to, to do that. <laughs> exactly. Right. We all know that dark skin looks more toned and better than light skin yet somehow you're pulling it off Jack. And so what is it about? I haven't, last time I saw you was San Luis Obispo 2021. 2022. 2022 no last year two, I, yeah. was it last yeah, maybe it was last year man okay anyways that was the first year i did rabbiting yeah anyway yes okay yes so um uh, to brag assessment you looked and appearances aren't everything but you looked more fit when i saw you at my wedding so tell me why like why do you think you appear more fit based maybe you've been looking this way for a year i don't know but like why how tell I me have. about that do you have any ideas yeah oh you have okay all you ever see is right here and up Kurt. No, I'm just joking. There, there is a difference. Well, that's true. I, I was just saying all you ever see in when we record race brain is my upper chest up. So you're not, yes, you're not yes, actually yes. seeing the rest of me. Yeah. Correct. Um, so is there anything to it or am I stri- reaching first? Am I reaching for that? No, I, I, I think there is something to it. Um, machine works. If you're doing 30 plus strokes a minute on the ski erg for a half an hour in a row and you know, 25 pulls a minute on the rower for half an hour and you're doing that several times a week, your arms are going to get a little bit veinier. It's just what's going to happen. Like you're working your arms, triceps and biceps. That's kind of all I've been limited to. So that helps. Um, I've also done, I forget which one of you came up with the term, but the grease in the groove. Um, I have a pull-up bar in my house every time. I didn't come up with it, Okay, uh, unfortunately. quoted it for the first time on this show. But I remember you mentioned that back in the day. And, you know, every once in a while, I'll just drop down, do 10 push-ups, or I have a pull-up bar in the garage. If I go down, get a snack or just put the laundry in, whatever, I'll I'll end up doing five to seven pull-ups. Nothing much. It's, it's just a little bit, but it goes a long way over the process. And the other thing that I did, and I've always been a pretty clean eater. Um, it kind of amazes me what people eat before races, honestly, like staying with guys like Ryan Kent and VJ and just seeing what they eat. And I'm like, how do you look the way you do? But, um, I've just always been a healthy guy. I just don't like eating crap, honestly, but I've adjusted a little bit of the calorie intake and I've actually gone up versus before, which is a little surprising despite not burning as many calories as before. I don't know if that had, I, I never felt underfueled. I never 
I've never counted macros or anything, but I, I'm just eating a little bit more than I used to. And I don't know if it's just gone to the right places or not, but I'm definitely well-fueled and it's just been a lot of, when you use the rower and the ski erg a lot, that's a lot of arms and it's just going to show realistically over the course of three months. I'm interested to see how you transition out of this with fitness because every time I get back to rowing, yesterday I did a workout, I did eight by three minutes running then five by two minute row into one more round of running. The top of my hamstring, bottom of my glute, that insertion point just gets lit up by the rower. And every time I'm doing skier, I realize how weak my core is. And every time I'm doing a salt bike, I realize, man, I don't generate power in my upper body the way I'd like to. And my quads actually aren't as good as I thought they should be with all the running I've been doing. And if I do a block of any of those things, those areas, they definitely improve. And so I'm interested to see when you come back, obviously I want to hear about how you're going to transition, but I'm just physically interested, interested in your physical performances of how your running handles this new type of fitness you're going to bring to the table. Once it gets back to the skill of running and handles the impact, I wonder how this is going to improve you. Yeah, it's, it's really weird. I'm, I'm sure you guys have done, for instance, like a, a big hill climbing block and you're like, I have such a monster going uphill and then you have to touch 5k pace on the flats and it's like oh boy I, I was neglecting that part of it so i'm a little worried where it's like i'm a monster on the machines right now compared to where i used to be but let me tell you eight minute pace not feeling too good on the runs so that that's going to be the hard part just figuring out how to move properly again but i think i've done a really good job at making sure that my movement patterns will be good um because of doing all the little work throughout this process but when i went on my first run about a week ago I, I mentioned this on race brand, um, Kirk, I, I basically felt like I was, a, you know, how they, a baby giraffe is born. It just plops out and it's like, you've got like six seconds to start running and you just need to start moving, but you don't really know how to walk yet. That's kind of how I felt once it became time to run again. I was like, I, I know all you have to do is lift your knee a little bit and then just do the other one as well. It's, it's going to happen, but I, I could not turn over a little bit or any bit faster. And I, I wasn't trying to go fast, but I think the toughest part for me is going to be cadence where getting from like the high one sixties to the low one seventies might be my, my normal spot or, or like the low one seventies might be where I want to be. I was looking back and I was like consistently 165 to 168 during my run just for cadence. Like I just don't have that spin rate. And I think that that's going to be something I need to be very, very aware of because it's so easy to get into a lazy stride um, and you can, you can go faster one of two ways. You either pick up your cadence or you, you increase the length of your stride. And I don't know, I feel like the, the less, less impact will happen when I speed up my stride a little bit. So I don't want to reinvent myself necessarily, but I'm going to be, have to be very conscious of getting out of that lazy stride. I don't know about you, Kirk, but in my rehabs, after each one of these surgeries, the thing that felt worse was easy running. I felt like a noob, like a total novice trying to run easy. And the first time I tried a, uh, an interval, it felt immediately better. It was this weird thing where I couldn't sustain it. I still had to get that back, but my stride felt better at like 10K pace than it did at 10-minute pace or 8-minute pace. It was very strange that running continuously, monotonously was awkward, but it remembered how to roll. I'll give you a data point on that today. Like I started running and every single time that I go on the Ultra G treadmill, I'm at 80% body weight at this point. So it basically is taking away 20% of how much I weigh to minimize the impact a little bit. And 
I always start out at 6.0, just a 10 minute mile, just first five or so minutes, just to make sure the legs are moving properly and stuff. And I looked down at my heart rate and it was 136. And I'm like, what the heck? That's like not where it should be based on pace wise for me. And then I just sped it up. And at the end of the run, I increased it to 8.0. So I was running like 730 mile pace and my heart rate was at 135. So it was a beat per minute lower, despite being two minutes faster per mile because it the stride felt right. That lazy slogging mm-hmm. form just it doesn't feel good. I, I could totally relate to that. But it might be a good thing because slowing down isn't gonna hurt. Yeah. Do you have guidelines as far as um how much time on feet you'll be able to spend once this once as you're progressing? Like for example, uh Johnny Luna Lima had struggled with uh, historic shin issues. He had a couple fractures. This is years ago, and he came out of that finally. And he shared with me this chart that was his return to running protocol prescribed by his therapist, and he followed it, and it worked. And it was painful, painfully slow. It was like week one was four minutes, four minutes, and six minutes. Week two was six minutes, six minutes, and eight minutes. Week three was. 10, 10, and 12. Week four was 12, 12, and 16. And he had to go through a six-week progression proving he could work up to one 20-minute run a week before he could open the guidelines and go off of feel. It was painfully slow. And as I mentioned earlier, everybody's like, hey, I can run again. And then they like go run way too much and they end up right where they started, right? And they battle the same injury again. It pops right back up and they're right back on their ass. What's your plan as far as that goes? Yeah, it's a great, great question. And that, that was something I talked about earlier today with Ryan. Um, you've got to remember, you have all this connective tissue and just these ligaments and tendons all around there. Bone, that that's healed. It's good. But there's a lot of stuff around there that hasn't been used to pounding for three plus months. So I think that easing back into it is the way to go. Um, I was cleared to do up to 30 minutes of running. And ideally uphill. He said for a while, uphill is the way to go. I know Bracken, you, you recommended that one time we talked after the show and you're like, go uphill. That's, that's going to be your friend. It avoids pounding. So I'm, I'm not planning on doing any downhill trail running at all for a while, probably like a couple of months. Um, I have done a couple other runs since then, and it's been two minutes running, one minute walking, two minutes running, one minute walking at 5%. And that this sounds very similar to Johnny Lily. I think I I accumulated 15 minutes of total running on that one. And then the next time that I went running, I did the same exact thing. And that's three days a week. I am not going to exceed three days a week and about 60 minutes total running during that week for the next month. And then a month after that, I'll increase it to four days a week, maybe hour and a half of running or so. But I, I know I can maintain fitness with cross training. And I'm, I'm going to do basically one extra day per month of running for until I'm able to run six days a week again. And that might be four or five months from now, but there's no sense rushing it. Cause then I'm just going to be in a worse spot later on. If I think I feel good, just cause you feel good one day, it's like, all right, time to rip. I'm going to run down this really long, steep descent and suddenly you're wrecked. And the past 13 weeks have been for nothing. So my my whole process is very systematic and similar to Johnny, where I'm going to do three days a week for my first month, four days a week for month two, five days a week for up to five days a week. Some weeks I might just drop it down to three just because I just feel like cross-training might be smarter there. Maybe like a deload once, once per month for one of those weeks. But I'm not going to push back into running because I know that I can maintain fitness otherwise. And every run that I do, I haven't done a stride or anything like that, but 
maybe once a week, I'll, I'll add in stride just to, just to get 15, 30 seconds of just running a little bit faster with the more natural stride, but it's, it's just going to be easy running for the most part, just cause that'll get me back to having this thing be completely in the rear view mirror sooner than having a setback and just having to start it all over again. How are you going to start introducing quality work intensity to your running? I think it would, it, it's tough. I, th- I think that the best approach might be doing like one minute at threshold when normally I do a three to five minute interval at that length, but really cut down the the rest. So maybe take 15 or 20 seconds rest and just do a bunch of rounds to accumulate the time total, but not nonstop. Cause I don't want to just be gutting it out and feel like I have to do four minute rounds or three minute rounds just because mm-hmm. of that. I think that, you know, a minute at a time, but cut the rest that adds up. My heart rate won't have time to, to go down during that quick time if you're running fast enough. And I think that that's probably the the safer approach. What, what do you guys usually recommend to athletes? It's a good place to start. I start uphill with that and then just lower the incline over time. Yeah. Uh, without question, all this work, any, any work is going to be at like 5% or above. So I'm, I'm not doing flats until it's time to do flats. Like, and that could be two months mm-hmm. from now. That could be four months from now. It could be next year. I don't care. I'm not, I'm not rushing the process. For me, I find that returning to running is humbling. Oh, is Jack there? There he is. You froze for a little bit. Okay. I, rem- I remember that from race brain. I just make sure we weren't repeating old habits there. Um, There's no soil here. Yeah. No soil. Okay. What I find is uh, returning to running will be real humbling. The inefficiency piece you talked about, feeling clunky, just like my body, it's it's kind of like the baby giraffe starting all over. Or like running will feel really good for a half mile, and then it's like a piano lands on my back right away, and I'm like, whoa, that was terrible. But like if you stay on your cross training like you have, you've worked your metabolic systems, and you've been doing, it sounds like, strength work and some other things, which we didn't talk about, but I assume that's part of the equation for you a little bit right now. I, I haven't touched a barbell this whole process, just just plyometric-based. Dumbbells, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a minor point, part of my point. But point being is then when you stay on it, the return to running and the impact is going to make you feel humbled. Your first quality session back, maybe you'll feel good initially and then you'll quickly again, the piano land on your back. But all of a sudden, I mean, I've experienced this. I get back somewhere in that three to six week range and I make jumps like bam, bam. Suddenly it's like, it's the exponential curve that happens. I start slow and then it's like, oh, like that system work I did while I was injured, it's in there. I just, my body needs to recalibrate to impact again. And that's the missing component to getting back to old speed. And so if you don't cross train through injury, you extend that process to getting back, let's say to your old self, but it's going to feel the same when you start regardless, except about that three to six week mark, you're going to exponentially see a bump if you stayed on your cross training versus just this slow, painful progression. And so that's where I think the magic really happens is once you readjust to impact, you can be only a step or two behind where you were when you got injured very quick. But the key is pushing through and doing purposeful workouts like you have been. At least that's been my experience. Totally agree. Yeah. And and you mentioned earlier, you had some athletes who are like, oh, I'm, I'm doing West Virginia. I don't care. I'm hurt. I'm, I already booked this. I have no flights on my schedule. If I race again this year, cool. I'm planning on it. Bracken and I are, are planning on doubling up for High Rock Chicago just to see who the uh, the better teammate from Race Brain is. No, um, we know it's Rich, but realistically, um, whoa, 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 it could be me. Could be you. Could be yeah. Honestly, if you go two for two for titles, team titles, actually three for three because of Cali, 
You are the the yeah, golden, the king, the mystery item there. Yeah, I'm the binding agent. Yeah. You're the common denominator. That's right. The only denominator. Yeah. Um, but that would be November 11th, and if I can do that, that's about 10 weeks. I do not plan on taking a single purposeful like run workout until at the earliest October. And if I do that, it's going to be those like one minute intervals, like I mentioned. I can stay fit. It's just I got to survive the runs at that point. But I don't have huge expectations for fitness wise, but I know it's possible. And Bracken, you, we were texting a little bit and you said that you had like a six to seven week buildup last year in time for it when you were coming off your injury. Mm-hmm. And, and you just you did just fine. You kind of just survived the runs and made it through the rest with Rich. Is, is that kind of how it went? Yeah, my fi- I brought quality back into it relatively early because I was running uphill at like 20%, but I was working. It actually felt better on my legs to hit the ground and get off the ground, even though you're not hitting much rather than to take the slower stride uphill. So I think we talked about it. I found 22 and a half percent incline was my sweet spot where it didn't stress anything. And then that moved down a little bit as time went on. But so I was doing quality, but I was two weeks out unsure if I could handle the pounding of the race, but I was doing uphill work. Yeah. And that was enough. Six to seven weeks was enough that I could run sub six pace on all our runs and be yeah okay until the end. That's, that's funny you mentioned that because in the past 22%, that's like the, all right, now I'm going to start power hiking. I'm more efficient versus running inclined for me. Mm-hmm. So I, I share that as well. Yeah. Yep. And then my other goal, um, and this is totally dependent on other people, but I will know in about three weeks if if I'm going to have a second race. Um, and if it doesn't, whatever, I'll, I'll race again in 2024. Um, but if my deck of fit time holds up top 20, end up making worlds. And right now I'm 15th, but several people like Rich and Dylan Scott and Megita, they're, they're going to be racing this weekend and will likely end up bumping me down a few spaces. I'm predicting I'm going to be like 18th or 19th after this weekend. And then probably a couple more are going to, you know, potentially kick me out. If I stay in the top 20, that's early December. I've got 14 or so weeks until then 15 weeks. I feel like I can get back in reasonable shape for that. And if not, whatever, but that's at least something to have my eyes on in case it happens. And I'll know within three weeks if I should shift my focus to that. And if not, I'm just going to continue this progression and, you know, see, see how the fitness falls into place rather than force it. I think that's smart, but it's also, it is good to maybe eye a few things, but it doesn't sound like it's going to change your trajectory of training. It's like, if the body gives you the green light, you'll move forward. Um, last burning question. I think the most important question of the day uh, when are you strapping on your rollerblades again, or are you traumatized now? Th- those bad boys are in the trash right now, so I that's gonna <laughs> that's gonna take some some some. Well, they're they're dented, like the the frame okay. for the the front wheel, the track on that uh, is no longer in a skatable condition. So somewhere at the bottom of the dump. Um, are yeah, you gun shy? Are you gonna leave them alone? Or are you you gonna get back in the saddle? It's tough because. I mentioned early on, like a lot of people actually do rollerblade. It it it's really urban skiing when you think about it, or cross country skiing. And it's a it's a, been a really good cross training form for years. But the risk reward, like you better believe, I'm I'm dressing up like Bubble Boy uh, next time that I I head out for that. But I don't know. I, I told myself I'm not doing it. I absolutely will not until next year if I do it. And if I do, it's going to be on like not that part. Because typically my route that I've done, I don't know, 50 times a year for the past, probably 200 times um, through the years, that that same exact path, because it's like a 10 foot wide, like nice along the creek throughout town, um, goes about 10 miles out and back. 
I've done that so many times, but that particular section, I could see how sand might get there again, and I'm not willing to risk that. So if I do it, it's not going to be till next year. So you'll have to stay tuned. All right. It's funny. The day Jack and I were supposed to meet and chat about training for Pennsylvania, when he called to inform me that he was in the process of bleeding out on the side <laughs> of the trail, I had uh, skate skis up in front of me, inline skis. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Some of the, the, the how the, the Nordic skiers do their dry land training, looking at other forms of, because I decided I just currently, I just can't embrace road biking. Road cycling to me just isn't doing it for me other than like big hero efforts. So I was thinking that could be a go-to style of getting outdoors still, but really working in a non-impact manner. And he calls and <laughs> nope. explains that he just almost died on a on a pair of inline skates. Yeah. 10 out of 10 don't recommend, but bottom line, you can come back from it. Just, just don't do yeah. it in the first place. I have a very flat bike path I can use. My out and back route has about 400 feet of climbing. So mine would have 40. Yeah, <laughs> Def definitely. I, I might be doing, if I come back, Kirk, I might be doing a lot of like two mile out, two mile back just to intentionally avoid that section, but we'll see. It, Go I, to I, I'm going to have to do some deep thinking. I, I, so my boss actually rollerblades a lot and I told him about that. He's, he's got hurt in the past and like we've always talked different models of rollerblades and he's like, you should save up, get these ones. These ones are so good. And they've got the, the three wheels instead of the four. And I'm like, I'm so glad that I didn't end up buying a new pair. Cause if I wrecked in those and like wasted all this money instead of the $40 ones I got during the pandemic, like it could have been a different story. The key is to get slow ones. Slow ones. Yeah. Well, that's what I was getting at. Those ones with like off-road wheels on them. Have you seen those? Benny Gifford They're uses like, those. He's crazy. Yeah. Like he goes on dirt paths and stuff. It's it, you would have man, you would have manhandled that sand on the path with those off-roading rollerblades. I'll think about it next time. Yeah, yeah. We should wrap this up because, you know, I got to yeah. go work. We're entering Benny Gifford territory, and that's going to get us off the rails. <laughs> yeah. The only thing that I'm most disappointed of, I think the saddest moment from the past three months was that I wasn't able to dig up your MySpace profile, Kirk. I was really sad. That was <laughs> that was way sadder than That made injury. me sad, too. Yeah. It's, it's so funny because... Like I listened to it and then I paused it and I, and I messaged you guys and I'm like, oh man, I'm going to look this up. And then I unpaused it. And then Bracken's like, we need Jack to look that up. I'm like, wow, you just knew that I'd do that. So it's pretty funny mm -hmm. timing whenever you need. All right, let's end it. This can be enough. <laughs> enough. <mic. laughs> All right, Jack. Thanks for your time, man. Thanks for, I know uh, you're a busy guy and you have a lot going on. So appreciate you. Uh, playing hooky from work for two hours to chat with us. Yeah, it's all good. Yeah. And if I, I, a lot of people were very helpful to me when I was hurt. So if you guys are dealing with an injury, feel free to reach out. I'll, you know, give some more suggestions or at least refer you to some people who definitely helped me out as well. So glad to help. Great. And I suppose if people have been living under a rock and they don't know who you are or where to like keep up with you, just let's for, let's for a formality, tell them where that is. Yeah. Yeah. To, to listen to race brain, Bracken, Rich and I, we, we have a good time every single week. Episodes come out on uh, Wednesday. And then uh, social media. Uh, Jack underscore Bauer underscore OCR on Instagram. So if you like nerdy stat stuff, I'm the guy to follow. All right. There you have it, folks. Thank you, Jack. Yeah. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks. Thanks.